0: Our reading from God's holy word this morning is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1 to 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham, quote, believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, quote, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, quote, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, quote, The just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but, quote, The man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is effectively uh, the second part of one sermon on this passage. We looked at eight major themes that Paul was was emphasizing here last week, and we're going to look at another five, but if it feels like you're in the middle of the passage, you are. I'm basically taking up at verse 7 and continuing on. Paul is now directly confronting those who have come into the church and have brought a false doctrine. And we are now, through his teaching, beginning to hear what that false doctrine really consists of. And we are seeing how the apostles respond to false doctrine. And as we get to the the second half of this passage, you can almost hear Martin Luther or John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon Uh, shouting the the Protestant charge back to the scriptures. Because as Paul begins to to deal with the doctrine that they are bringing, that's how Paul begins to really deal with it. In chapter 4, in verse 21, he's going to overtly uh, really emphasize this. Put it up. He will say, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? It's a a good question. Those who are bringing religious innovation are claiming to speak for God, but God has spoken. They are pretending to hold the law in high estate, but have they really actually considered what the law is for? It is for a purpose. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But do they seem to be men of the scriptures? Would you be able to say, these men really know what the word has to teach? In verse 8, Paul says, and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So, With that statement, he directs us back to the scriptures we already possess. At the time of the writing of Galatians, the church of God did not possess the New Testament. It was coming to them piece by piece. It was being inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the scriptures that they had in their hands was the Hebrew Bible. And Paul, in refuting the false teachers, says back To the Scriptures, and he takes us back to Genesis, the very first book of the Hebrew Bible, and he says that the Scriptures have been preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand. So, according to the Apostle, the gospel, not a gospel, not a former gospel, the gospel was there to be preached. And Abraham, the wandering desert nomad, thousands of years before Jesus Christ walked on earth, could hear it from the scriptures. The scriptures preached it to him. Now, what does it mean that the scriptures preached to Abraham? I will confess, it's a very odd way of speaking. And if you turn to scholars... Uh, they they all kind of tend to have their own take on it. So what you're about to hear from me is my take on it, and I'm the one here, so I'm giving it to you, but there are other takes. But if you look at what Paul quotes, where it says in verse 8 that, uh, in you all nations shall be blessed, that is not strictly one quote from Genesis, whether you can find that in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. You can find it in chapter 18 and verse 18. You can find it in verse 26 and verse 4. And you can find it in 28 and verse 14. I'm, I'm not going to put them all up and read them because they all say the same thing. And you shall the nations be blessed. When Paul says the scripture has preached this to Abraham... He is considering the scripture as the spoken word of God. And God has over and over again in Genesis said this to Abraham. And when God speaks something over and over and over again, uh, you might want to take note. God is literally preaching. Because what is preaching but again and again proclaiming God's word to those who will listen, uh, often repetitively because we need to hear it to have it sink in, Well, Abraham got this preached to him. In you, all the nations, all the Gentiles, because the word Gentile and the word nations are the same in Hebrew, in you, all the nations of mankind, all the Gentiles, and, of course, your people, every tribe and condition of men will be blessed in you, God said again and again and again. That seems to mean that Abraham is being set forward in a very special way as the model for what God is going to do with people. Abraham himself is a man, but he's going to end up in a very special condition because God is going to make a covenant with him in particular. But here, he is specially set forward in the way that he responds to God and relates to God, and that is by faith. The earliest picture you see of a man saved by faith, a man justified by faith, that you see that it's overtly said is in the first book of the Old Testament in the 15th chapter in the 6th verse. So justification by faith is not exactly what you'd call a ruggedly New Testament doctrine. God sets Abraham forth, and he is justified before God because he believes what God says, he trusts in God, he clings to God alone. God's promise is his secure hope, and that justifies him. Now, if you're reading through Genesis, you know that the narrative of Genesis is God created all things and he created them good. He created man to be in a relationship with him and be his under-shepherds. God actually walked with them in the cool of the day, actually did that and related to them. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, man is thrown out of the garden. And by the end of chapter 4, God is not manifesting himself to man in that direct way at all anymore. So there is an incredible alienation between man and God. And so when you get to chapter 15 and we read about somebody being justified by his faith, in the context of the book of Genesis, that means God is no longer holding him under wrath and holding him apart from himself. So that's a very, very significant moment in the book of Genesis. You have had 12 chapters of man being out of fellowship with God and really terrible things happening. Things like a worldwide flood that destroys most of mankind. Things like the Tower of Babel, where mankind tries to invade God's heaven. But in chapter 15, we are introduced to a man who is justified, made right with God, reconciled to God. That man is Abraham And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul says, if you're going to be justified, you're going to be justified this way. And God has emphasized that when talking to Abraham by saying, in you, in my relationship with you, in the model of this relationship, all types and conditions of men will be blessed. So Abraham is the man of faith, the model for those who would be justified, and if you are going to be in the image of the model, you can be called his child because a family resemblance can be seen. Uh, one One of the neat things about being a pastor is I get to watch generations of you all come uh, I get to meet you when you're young, and then I get to see you when you have children, and I get to see you when you're old. And it never ceases to utterly amuse me when I see your children act just like you. And it happens from time to time. Um, I will watch little kids talking and watching them, you know, I know your dad, and he, he acts just that way, and he does that. Well, those who are justified by faith, have the family resemblance of Abraham because they're living like Abraham, they're in the covenant of Abraham, they are relating to God like Abraham, and they are, in fact, justified. It's already happened. God has looked at them, and he has said, you're not to be alienated anymore. You will be intimate with me. And if you read Genesis you will come to one conclusion about Abraham. He is not necessarily the paragon of absolute persistence. Rather, when you read Genesis, you will be struck by how very human and fallible Abraham can be. He will occasionally rise to the occasion, and he will be a model of what faith ought to produce. He will also, on occasion, be an absolute sinner. And uh, those sins can have terrible consequences. So if Abraham is to be our model, it's not going to be found in his consistency, because honestly he's a sinful man from time to time. It's going to be in the fact that he is a man of faith. And those who have his faith are, quote, children of Abraham. Which brings up an interesting question if you turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 7 and 9. It is the beginning of the ministry of Christ and his forerunner has gone ahead of him. And here in chapter 3, we see that forerunner, we see uh, John the Baptist, and we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father." For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. It has been taken from this passage by some that John the Baptist is belittling the whole concept of being a child of Abraham. Doesn't matter if you're a child of Abraham. That's not what he's doing. John the Baptist doesn't say, now you think that Abraham is your father, Eh, that doesn't matter. What John says is, the almighty power of God is such that if he wants to, he can make dead stones into sons of Abraham, but being a son of Abraham is kind of a significant thing. And if you're a brood of vipers, you're not really Abraham's children. But being a child of Abraham is a New Testament thing. To be of his faith, to be walking with God as he walked, to be of faith, like Abraham, that is a very good thing. John is putting the onus on the fact that God creates that, not men. Here, you wouldn't tend to think of this, but if you put yourself into the situation where this letter is going, you will realize that the false teachers at this point could easily pounce on what Paul is saying and say, Paul, you're absolutely right. Abraham is the thing. Well, this is the way they would say it. But Paul, were we not children of Abraham before Christ walked among us? Wasn't that a thing all the way back to Genesis? Uh, why, Why then are we different? Well, Paul has already caught them in their trap. Because they weren't really children of Abraham. They were broods of vipers, as John described the Pharisees. And they were that because they had turned away from faith. A doctrine that is found all throughout the Hebrew Bible. A doctrine that God had proclaimed time and time again. They had turned from faith. And so, no, they really were not. They did not look like their father. They did not act like their father. They did not think like their father. They were in no way of the same kind of people as their father. So, no, they were not. They were not children of Abraham. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, says Paul, is absolutely proof that the children of Abraham is us, who have faith and are of faith. It is really significant, and and I know that I emphasized this last week, but this is really significant. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, and he doesn't say, let me prove to you that the Holy Spirit is among you, which you would kind of expect him to do. If you were a 21st century theologian, Paul would now lay down a doctrine where he would go step by step, proving that the Holy Spirit is among the church. He doesn't do that at all. Rather, he writes to the Galatians and says, you know the Holy Spirit is among you. You experience the Spirit. Nobody who's reading this letter is going to gainsay that the Spirit is among you. They can't miss it. So, where is the Spirit, says Paul? you will notice that the Spirit is among those who do not depend upon works of the law to relate to God, but by those who absolutely depend upon faith. I don't know if I wrote a letter in the 21st century and talked about Christendom at large. I could write, now if, if you look at what happens in you know All Saints Episcopal Church the Holy Spirit is obviously here. Or, you know, uh, everybody knows that when you go to any local church, the Holy Spirit is there. But in the first century in Galatia, when Paul writes to the earliest churches, everybody has to say, you know, when Christians are gathered together, the Spirit is present. We can't miss His presence. There are things happening that are obviously the Spirit. And and look at how Paul emphasizes this in verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Jumping to verse 5. Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And now jumping to verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham may come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In 14 verses, that's a very heavy emphasis on the Spirit is among you. And the Spirit is with those who are of faith. And more than that, as we get to the end of the chapter, into verse 14... Paul refers to a specific event. Um, Abraham has a, a blessing that needs to come upon the Gentiles, and when that happened, we would, quote, receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Receive the promise of the Spirit. That seems to be a reference to a specific event. There was a promise about the Holy Spirit That promise had not yet happened before, but that promise has happened now, and that promise is not the mere presence of the Spirit, but something more. We've been reading through 1 Samuel, and in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, uh, we have seen the Spirit come upon King Saul, sometimes when he didn't even want it. We, if we go through the, the Hebrew Scriptures, we'll find the Spirit is moving among God's people. When we get to Psalm 51, David, praying in repentance, begs God not to take the Spirit from him, which means that he has to have it to be afraid it would be taken. So the mere presence of the Spirit is not that promise. Rather, what Paul seems to be pointing to is a promise that was made in the prophets in the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 28, we read this, "...and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions." And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. For hundreds of years, the people of God had waited for that promise. There would be an outpouring of the Spirit that would be more. It would be a pouring of the Spirit to the utmost unto God's people, Uh, They had known the Spirit, the Spirit had been among them, but this would be an outpouring like nobody's business. Well, if you are familiar with the book of Acts, you know when that happened. The Apostle Peter in chapter 2 says directly, this is what's happening. If you go to Acts chapter 2 and read verse 1 through 4 and 14 through 21, this is what you hear. Now, as you might imagine, uh, people watching what's taking place are probably wondering what's going on, and so the apostle Peter tells them as we go on, beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is significant to notice when you go back to the original prophecy uh, what has to happen before this happens, and who it applies to. Going a little further back in Joel, uh, which is, is required because uh, you will notice that the, the prophecy begins with, now after these things, well, after what things? Well, he's just said in Joel chapter, chapter 2, verse 25 to 27, so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, and the consuming locust and the chewing locust. my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know, you shall know, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. So when it said after this time, well, this is the time when God has done those things. One, he has restored their fortunes so that, honestly, they're more prosperous now than they were at any time in their history. And number two it could not be missed that God was among them. Well, that describes the time of Jesus of Nazareth perfectly. We are used to hearing about how during the time of the Roman Empire, Judea was a backwater. It was insignificant. It was poor country. That's not really actually true. If you look at Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, and if you look at Jerusalem in the days of, uh, say, David, Uh, The city is five times bigger in the time of the Romans. Peace is much more prevalent. The people actually are enjoying prosperity unlike they had seen, except maybe in the time of King Solomon. Uh, God had kept his word, and even though they had been devastated by invaders after invaders after invaders uh, because he was punishing them, God miraculously had restored their fortunes. But even more than that he had manifested his presence with them in a way that never, ever had happened before and since, and that is he took on flesh and walked among us. And so the time of God's really being known as being among us, being with his people, that's the time of Jesus the Christ because he's God right there. And then Paul's, then Joel and Peter emphasize afterwards, I'll pour out the Spirit, well, that's what's happening in Acts, and that's the time for it. And you will notice who it is who will receive this outpouring. It is emphasized twice in the original prophecy. It's whoever will call in the name of the Lord. It is whoever the Lord will call. It's God's servants, but it is whoever. God is not at this time going to make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Whoever calls on the Lord at this outpouring of the Spirit, whether they be Greek or Roman or Indian or Chinese or African, the Spirit is going to pour down on all those kind of people. It's going to be a worldwide kind of outpouring. Whoever calls on the Lord, they're going to be whom the Lord has called, and it's going to be glorious. The Spirit is going to dominate this time period. He is going to be in the church. Nobody is going to be able to miss it. It will be the day of the Spirit. Well, they're experiencing that. When they assemble in the name of Jesus Christ, they are experiencing the Spirit, ministering to them, filling them with praise and gratitude, filling them with spiritual wisdom, giving them insight into God's Word, the Spirit is motivating them to love and good deeds, and Paul can say to the churches, this is an evidence that the Spirit is with you. You can't miss it. And where is the Spirit? Is he with those who, who, who teach you that to be justified by God, you have to obey the law, or is he with those who live in faith? Well, the argument seems to be, if you look around, you have to agree with Paul, he's with the people of faith. And so it is. The day has come. God has poured out his spirit, Pentecost has taken place, and where is the spirit? He is on those who have faith. This is the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham is to be justified, or to use Joel's words, to be saved. There are two emphases of the same thing. If you are out of fellowship and alienated from God, you need saving. Because your condition cannot last. The clock is ticking, and eventually you're going to be called to task. Eventually, God is going to call you before his throne, you're going to stand before him, and you are going to answer, and you are going to be damned if you are not justified. If somebody delivers you from being damned, they're saving you. And Paul began his epistle really kind of summing up what it means to be justified by faith when he wrote these words. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ delivers. Christ saves. Christ justifies. You can kind of tell what tradition a Christian is from by what words they emphasize when they talk about what Christ does if you are a Baptist you're going to use the word saved a lot and because of that if you're not a Baptist you tend to kind of not use it as much because you know you don't be thought of as a Baptist but in the Bible saved delivered justified redeemed these are all very close to synonyms Jesus Christ has come to justify us so that God looks at us and says, you're not guilty, to redeem us because we are worthless and he he makes us uh, his valuable servants to uh, deliver us from this evil age. And that is not just when we die. That is at this very moment you are delivered from this evil age so that you're walking apart from it and saves you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't really want to give the word saved to the Baptists and the Evangelicals. I mean, I want them to have it, but I don't want to give it up. Because what word talks more about grace than saved? I was helpless. I was delivered. I was doomed. Somebody took a bullet for me. I was saved. It's a good word. And the blessing of Abraham is to be saved. And uh, the blessing of Abraham, Paul ends this chapter with, had to come upon the Gentiles so that the promise of the Spirit would happen, which has in fact happened. God has poured out his Spirit, and it is on those who are of faith. But there is something that is on those who are of works. And you find that in verse 10, and it it parallels uh, the, the promise of the Spirit being on those of faith. Those who are of works, well, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So everybody in the world is under something. Those who are of faith are under the blessing of Abraham. They have salvation. They have the spirit. But those who are of the works of the law are under the curse. Let's apply the, 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 the where, when, how questions. Where is this curse? Well, it's on as many as are of the works of the law. Um when does this curse come into play? Well, it's the very first time that you are not in conformity to God's holy law, both in thought, word and deed. The moment that is true of you, the moment you are out of conformity with the law of God in any way, uh, the curse comes to bear, because uh, cursed is everyone who does not continue fully in the law to do it. What is the curse? Well, the curse is that alienation I was talking about. You are separated from God. God doesn't uh, relate to you as a child. God will draw you to the day of judgment and will, will hold you accountable and will cast you into fire. Why is this curse there? Well, it's because of the nature of relating to God by law. According to Paul, the law is specifically designed to make men guilty. So it works really well. Now, that doesn't mean that without the law, doing the things the law says don't do isn't evil, uh, because intrinsically it is. But it means that on the day of judgment, God has a legal standard that he will hold up to you and say, this was our relationship. Uh, As long as you did this perfectly, I would let you into heaven, and guess what? You didn't. From the moment you had two atoms put together because you were intrinsically a sinner. And then finally, what is the how of this curse? Well, you don't have the Spirit. You are left to your own devices. You live in misery. And you're hell bound. So, Paul is pulling no punches. There are two ways to relate to God one of them has the presence of the Spirit permeating you, the other one has the curse. And that's it. That's the only way you can relate to God, and everybody does in one way or another. As we come towards the, the end of this passage, though, I'd like to, to hammer again the concept of the Scripture's preaching. When I read the, the passage and we looked at Paul's quotations of the Old Testament, I used the word quote because I wanted you to realize Paul is quoting. If you go back through verse 10 through 13, look how often Paul quotes the Hebrew scriptures. In chapter 10, you have, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In verse 11, the just shall live by faith. In verse 12, the man who does them shall live by them. In verse 13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Where are these quotes from? They are from the Hebrew scriptures, which the apostle of Jesus Christ is quoting as normative. If you read the New Testament and you look at how the apostles use the Old Testament, you will realize the apostles, more times than not, do not emphasize a change in the covenant. 90% of the time they emphasize Everything you read in the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings is normative. Paul is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is doing it strictly from the Hebrew Bible. He is quoting Genesis, and he is quoting uh, Habakkuk, and he is quoting Deuteronomy. How many people here have read Deuteronomy? Great, that's fantastic oftentimes when Christians get asked that, they kind of look at the ground and go, yeah, I haven't read that one. When Jesus Christ was confronted by the devil in the wilderness, all three of the quotes he uses against the devil are drawn from Deuteronomy. It is almost as if that book of the law contained the grace and wonder of God and could drive the devil away. It does, and it did. If you only had the Hebrew scriptures, you would still have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what it's about. The scriptures preach Jesus. And secondly, you cannot find a better passage of scripture to absolutely put in your face the substitutionary atonement. In verse 13, Paul just spells it out. um, uh, Well, the reason why I'm not finding it. um, Here we go. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I had a, a Roman Catholic priest look me in the eye and say, now that doesn't teach substitutionary atonement. And I ask him how that works. And he didn't really explain it to me, he just told me it didn't. If you read the words, it is clear that someone has taken a bullet for you. If you are of faith in Jesus Christ, there is a substitution. That curse which is on everyone who tries to relate to God by law, has been taken from you. Jesus has literally become that curse and it has been crucified. You have been delivered by his action. Christ has substituted and has taken your penalty. That is the gospel. That is what happened with Abraham. Abraham believed God, trusted in God, laid hold of God, And Abraham won the greatest of guys. He won the worst, but he won the greatest. But because he absolutely laid hold of the promise of God, laid hold of God, trusted God, he was justified. And the legal reason he could be justified is because God had made a promise way back at the beginning of Genesis that the seed of the woman would crush the devil's head. That was one of the promises that Abraham was laying hold of. Abraham was of a nature that he believed God. Whatever God said, Abraham believed. He trusted God. And God had promised, I will justify you, and Abraham was justified. Legally, that could happen because Jesus took his bullet. He was the one who was the seed of the woman. He is substituted for you. That is why you have the blessing of Abraham. Are we not Abraham's children? Say the... Physical descendants of Abraham. And the New Testament says, no, not really. Those who are of faith are the children of Abraham.